we'll jump right into our evening lecture. If you have a copy of the confession, you can turn to chapter 30, paragraph 3. And you can go ahead and have your Bible open to Luke chapter 22. That's where we'll begin. We'll be looking at several different places, passages of Scripture, and we have a short enough lesson that I think we'll have time to turn to several of them. So... Just be prepared there. <clears throat> By way of recap, in, in our examination of the confessional formulation of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, we've seen the following. The Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord Jesus, and that on the night when He was betrayed. The observation of the Lord's Supper is to be in the gathered assembly of the church, and it will be observed until Christ returns. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a means of grace to us as we come and remember Christ's death in faithful trust that this death is the very crux of the work accomplished for our salvation. Now, last week we saw in opposition to the Catholic Mass, the Lord's Supper is not an offering of Christ to the Father. The Lord's Supper is, is no sin-remitting sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of the one sacrifice of Christ already offered once for all. And the Lord's Supper is an occasion to worship God in Christ for an accomplished salvation. So in, in repudiation to the Catholic Mass, we, we do not believe any type of sa actual sacrifice of any, any sort takes place at the Lord's Supper. Now, in the third paragraph, we're going to open up and expand on one little phrase in paragraph 1, and the phrase is, to be observed, in paragraph 1. We're going to open that up and consider uh, the proper method for observing the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm going to take this paragraph, uh, paragraph and divide it into five points, and we do this often. We take something that is in itself probably fairly simple, and we sort of zoom in on it, divide it up, pick it apart. And so we take something like we did this morning, just a few words, and, and we spend a lot of time on them. We're going to do that here. Take something that's pretty simple, split it up and unpack it. But by the time we're finished, what I really want you to see is the simplicity of the supper as Christ has given it to us. How simple it is compared to the positive ordinances that were given to the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant. Or uh, compared to the, the, uh, the ritualistic ways in which it has been distorted in uh, churches like the Church of Rome and others. They, they've taken it and really made a, quite a, a spectacle of it. But when you really see what Christ has instituted, it's very, very plain and simple, almost... Uh, Almost too simple. It, it, you wonder how people could get this wrong, and I, and I think there's a reason for that. So let me read the paragraph, and then we'll, we'll divide it up into five separate points. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed His ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, 
and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, and to take the take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants. The first thing that we see is the proper administration of the Lord's Supper or the parties that are designated to administer the Lord's Supper. This is something we've already seen. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed His ministers. Now in that statement we're reminded and taught about the first administrator and also we see a transfer of administration. And this is where I want to read first beginning with Luke 22. The first administrator of the Lord's Supper was Christ Himself. Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came, He reclined at table with the apostles and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again or eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If we went back further and if you piece together the, the, the stories in the Gospels, you know that it was Christ who actually took the initiative and purposefully made it to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. He, he, he set Himself to be there at a certain time, especially to be a part of this Passover. Uh, it was Christ who sent the disciples to have the room prepared, to find the room and, and all of that. Here we find Christ earnestly desired to eat this Passover with His disciples. And, and as we read this account, as it is in all of the Gospels, the whole scene is focused on Christ Himself. He done this, He done this. He said this, He said this. Constantly, He is the one leading the entire institution of the Lord's Supper. He is the first administrator. But then we see that Christ, having ascended to the right hand of His Father in heaven, has now transferred the duty of administration to His ministers. We saw this in chapter 28, paragraph 2. These holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. Remember, because speaking of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper... These are ecclesiastical ordinances. They are ordinances of the church. When these things are administered, the Lord's Supper is administered, it is a wielding of the authority of the church and the keys of the kingdom. Therefore, it is to be administered by those who have been appointed by the church to execute the will of the church. Now, we also, when we studied that idea, we also took note of how the sacraments are a kind of visual, uh, sensual proclamation of the teaching of Scripture. And so when you say that it's the ministers of Christ who are qualified and called who administer the sacraments, what you're saying is 
Those who preach the Word verbally are also the ones who are called and, and, and commissioned to dispense of the Word sacramentally. That, that falls into that official function. Now I want to build that case a little bit further, just this idea of, of Christ being the original administrator and then Him transferring that administration to His, to his under-shepherds or his, his ministers. The Bible is clear that the offices of the proclamation of truth are given and then filled by Christ, Ephesians 4.11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These men, their job is to serve in a sort of representative function for Christ, to administer the Word of Christ in His churches. Another passage, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is... one of the primary texts in the New Testament that deal with the, the responsibilities of the, the pastor-elder. We also see this, this language that, that connects what elders do and what they are to what Christ is and what Christ did. 1 Peter 5, 1-4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Or we could say, pastor the flock of God. Same, that's, that's what the word pastor means, shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd or chief pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now several important things that we find here making this connection between present day pastor elders and Christ Himself. We see this language of shepherding. Shepherd the flock. That's the command given to the elders. That's your job. Pastor the flock. Shepherd the flock. But then at the end of the section, it refers to Christ as the chief shepherd, the chief pastor. Now the elders, you've probably heard this language, are under shepherds. Christ is the chief shepherd. Elders are under shepherds. But there is a relationship. They both have some sort of shepherding pastoral function. Well, what is that? Well, under shepherds are meant to represent the chief shepherd. Well, how do we know that? We see that language that Peter uses when he says, not domineering over those in your charge, is the way the ESV translates it. The King James says, neither as being lords over God's heritage. And you, 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 if you have that, you'll see it's in italics. The word God's is inserted to, as sort of as an interpret, interpretation. It literally reads, over the portion. Over, there's an allotment or a share that has been handed to the elders. The, the idea is that the elders have been allotted a portion or entrusted with the care of a people who are not theirs, they're God's people. If you use the language of sheep and shepherds, um, Christ is the chief shepherd. The sheep belong to the chief shepherd. He's gone away. He gives under shepherds to do what? To shepherd His sheep. To, to act as a representative between him and the people in his absence. Now what do these lesser shepherds do? They execute the will of the chief shepherd. 
period. Again, they act as representatives of the chief shepherd administering oversight in his absence. And a part of that administration is continuing in what Christ instituted in the Lord's Supper. So in the institution of it, Christ, the chief shepherd, administers it. Then after Christ ascends to heaven, his under-shepherds pick up that staff and they continue to administer what Christ himself instituted. Another passage that uses this same language is, is Acts chapter 20 when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The image that you get here is that you're looking out literally over a pasture and there are sheep. And the elders are charged with shepherding the sheep, exercising oversight. But again, when you read it, whose sheep are they? They're God's sheep. It's the church that God bought, His church, His people, His flock. The elders and pastors are, are under shepherds guarding God's sheep until Christ returns. So that, that, that kind of helps us to understand what I've called the transfer of administration. Christ was the first administrator of the Lord's Supper and then... Now that has been handed down to the pastors of churches. So the proper administration, the ministers of the church. Number two, we see the prayer of blessing. <clears throat> the prayer of blessing. The Lord Jesus hath, in this ordinance, appointed His ministers to pray and bless the elements. So those who administer the supper are to first pray. Again, why? Well, this mimics the pattern that Christ gave us. Matthew 26, 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. He blessed it. That is, He offered up a prayer of blessing. So Christ's ministers following Christ's pattern are to pray, offer up a prayer of blessing. This is, here's a, a quote from Sam Waldron. He says, A prayer of blessing is a prayer of thanksgiving in which God is entreated to make the food eaten a means of divine blessing to us. Now, we understand, if we were to ask, well, why is this important? Well, it's because we understand that the elements are in and of themselves only physical things. And so what we're doing is we're praying and we're saying, God, will you take these physical things that we all admit they're just physical things, would you take them in this ordinance and bless them unto a spiritual purpose? And God can take things which in themselves have no power and He can make them useful to minister grace to our souls. So there should be a prayer. Prayer of blessing given by the pastor administering the ordinance is a way to publicly acknowledge what we seek to take place in the supper. There may be some among us who are unclear about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. What are we doing here? Perhaps a, a former Roman Catholic were to come in and they've got some ideas about what's happening. Well, the prayer of blessing is a good time for us to say, God, here's what we would like for you to do in this act because we know the elements themselves are just bread and wine. That we need you to act. That there's nothing uh, particularly gracious uh, in, in the elements themselves. So there's to be a prayer of blessing. Third, we see the proper elements of the Lord's Supper. It says he's, that the minister is to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine. 
The elements then of the Lord's Supper are bread and wine. And we see Christ using bread and wine at the, Lord's, at the first Lord's Supper. Again, Matthew 26, 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, a few things about the bread. <clears throat> yes, we do know that the Lord's Supper was instituted at a Passover meal. Number two, yes, we do know that the bread that was prescribed to be eaten at the Passover meal was unleavened bread. Number three, we also know exactly why the bread was to be unleavened bread at the Passover. Here are some passages. Exodus 12, 8, They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. <clears throat> Why unleavened bread? Exodus 12, 39. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Couldn't wait for what? Well, they couldn't wait for, for leavened bread to rise. If you've ever made bread that has to be leavened, you, you get it already, and then you've just got to let it sit. It has to rise before you can bake it. He's saying, you didn't have time for that. You were thrust out in haste. And therefore, the bread was to be unleavened. Deuteronomy 16.3 You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. The unleavened bread of the Passover was a reminder of their hasty exit from Egypt. That's why it was unleavened. Four, we also know that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that would be in Hebrew and in Greek, there are different words used for leavened bread and unleavened bread not simply a qualifier added to the word bread. So for us in English, we would say bread, B-R-E-A-D, or just tack the word unleavened onto that word to qualify it. Is, it. is it bread or unleavened bread? That's how we distinguish. In Hebrew and in Greek, it's not that way. There's one word for unleavened bread, one word, a completely different word for leavened bread. Okay? So if in the Scriptures, every time unleavened bread is mentioned, it uses one word. Every time leavened bread is mentioned, it uses the other word. We know that. Number five, why, why is this important? Still focusing on the bread. In every instance where the Lord's Supper is mentioned, even in the Gospels, the term used is the term for regular leavened bread, not the term for unleavened bread. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, I'm not prepared to make a definitive declaration on the matter, but I, what, what I think might help us, and maybe somebody can take this and run with it, is I want to give you some other places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where regular leavened bread is used, that word for leavened bread is used, that might at least get, get us started on a right track as to try to answer the question, why might it have actually been leavened bread 
at a feast where they were not supposed to have leavened bread. Why, why might that be the case? And again, I think we're forced to ask this question because of that concept of the words. If, if the words mean anything in any place, then we have to come to the, we have to, uh, to work this out. Why? Places in the Old Testament and the New Testament that use the term for regular bread. Genesis 14, 8. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now we know from the New Testament, Melchizedek was a, a typological figure pointing to Christ. Christ is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And so I think there, there's, there, there's at least a relationship between Melchizedek and Christ. Here, when Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to Abraham after his, his battle with these four kings, it's leavened bread. Now, again, what's the significance? I don't know at that point. I'm just saying that's what kind of bread was used there. Exodus 16.4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And that was obviously the manna that, was, came, that fell from the sky. That was the, the word used there is leavened bread. Exodus 18.12, Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before the Lord. This was sort of a covenantal meal in the very presence of God, and they ate leavened bread. Luke, or Leviticus 24, 5, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. This is describing the bread of the presence so we, uh, the, that was in the tabernacle. And that was, according to he Hebrews 9, 2, leavened bread. The bread of the presence. Those are Old Testament passages. Melchizedek brought leavened bread. Manna was leavened bread. Leavened bread was eaten in the presence of God. The bread of the presence was leavened bread. And moving to the New Testament, Luke 24, verses 30 and 31. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Verse 35, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's leavened bread. After the resurrection, it was the breaking of leavened bread, uh, or in the breaking of that leavened bread, that Christ was known to these men. Turn to John chapter 6. I'm tempted to say this is the culmination of the matter. John chapter 6, verses 31 to 35. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Skip to verse 48. I think there's a connection here with the Lord's Supper. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." 
The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Every instance of the term bread in these verses is a reference to leavened bread. It's not the word for unleavened bread. And again, eating Christ's flesh and blood is, I believe, clearly associated at least with the spiritual nature of a faithful observance of the Lord's Supper. We're coming to, to exemplify that by faith we live upon Christ's body and blood. That's what he's getting at here. So, this, here's a, what I, I'm calling an unsettled hypothesis about all this because I'm really, I really not, not sure how to put all this together. Uh, so this is, this is that. It seems that the necessity which required unleavened bread in the original Passover, namely the haste in which it had to be baked, is no longer a necessity in Christ. We do not eat lamb at the Lord's Supper. First of all, because the Lord's Supper is not the Passover, but because Christ, the Lamb of God, has come. That, that, that type has been fulfilled in the antitype. We do not eat lamb because Christ is the Lamb of God, we do not eat unleavened bread because whoever believes in Christ does not need to be in haste, but can rest and enjoy the true bread from heaven. Now, at the very least, bread is to be used. And some people believe very strongly that we should, that we should be using unleavened bread based on the, the, the Passover and what was required there. Uh, and, and if somebody has more information or can teach me more about this than I'm not seeing, I'd be open to it. But it seems to me like the word that's used is leavened bread. And so we, we use leavened bread here, not, not because of that, but just, I guess I could say this, it's not worth fighting over. Um, in, in this situation, uh, if, if leavened, or un, yeah, leavened bread is handed out, hopefully nobody says, well, this is not what they had at the Passover, I'm not touching it. Uh, I actually do believe there's good reason to believe that we should use leavened bread. And then there's wine. Wine is the other element. Matthew 26, verse 27. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He refers to this cup in this section as the fruit of of the vine. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one, 21, Paul rebukes the Corinthians. He says, For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. So there were clearly people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. So then we've done this before. If we ask, What kind of fruit grows on vines that is turned into a popular drink by which some people can potentially become drunk? Well, the answer is wine. It was wine that was used at the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
According to Jewish tradition, that cup of blessing was the, fi- the last of several cups that would have been uh, drank during their Passover feast. The cup of blessing was that last cup. And so what he's saying is we, we have, the only cup that we partake of now in the Lord's Supper is that cup of blessing, and it was a cup of wine. In Luke twenty two twenty, 20, Christ said, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then in, in Hebrews chapter 9, you can turn to this passage, just sort of expounding on the, the idea behind the cup and the meaning of it. Hebrews 9, 15 to 18. Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now we could stop right there. This is, a, this is an important passage for Baptists. We could stop right there and ask, why were the, uh, why were the death, deaths under the old covenant not sufficient to redeem the transgressions committed under them? Another death has to take place because that which was sacrificed under the Old Covenant was not sufficient in itself. The Old Covenant did not uh, render a, a true sacrifice for sins. There had to be another sacrifice to cover the sins, even those committed under the First Covenant. And then he says, For well, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The wine of the Lord's Supper represents the blood of Christ poured out, which formally inaugurated what we call the new covenant or the covenant of grace. Though the, the, the efficacy of the covenant of grace did extend back to those who looked forward, forward to it by faith in the promise. The covenant of grace was not ratified until Christ's blood was poured out and His life was given. So the elements of the Lord's Supper are to be bread and wine and their significance to both of those elements. The fourth thing we see is the purpose of the prayer. So we kind of come back to that idea of that prayer of blessing offered by the minister. The confession says, and thereby, that is by the prayer, to set them, the elements, apart from a common to a holy use. So the prayer of blessing sets apart the bread and wine from common to holy use. Again, this is Christ's pattern, Matthew 26, 27. He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them. The bread that we used, or that we use in the Lord's Supper could be bread eaten at any time, in any place. It's not special bread. The wine that we drink could be drunk at any time, in any place. It's not special wine. There's not a store where we go and buy the the special Lord's Supper bread and wine. The prayer of blessing, again, entreats God to make these common things useful in a special way. And, And it is incumbent upon the church to recognize this this, uh, this transaction has taken place, that these things have gone from common to holy. It, the, the public prayer helps acknowledge that. As I said before, before emphasizing they're just common things, now emphasizing they have been now set apart as holy. Uh, 
And Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The idea of discerning the body seems to be they're eating and drinking without distinguishing in their hearts the sacred nature and meaning behind the bread and wine in this institution that they now, in this institution, point to something else besides themselves. So we, we could say, again, it's not the bread and wine in themselves, but it's the bread and wine as they are being used. They now point to Christ's body. So in this sense, we could say, they're just, it's just regular bread and wine. But then having offered the prayer of blessing, following the pattern of Christ, they're no longer just regular bread and wine. They are now being used in a special sense. The bread and wine that has been set apart for a particular purpose. So there's the purpose of the prayer sets these things apart from common to holy. The fifth thing that we see, finally, the, the proper distribution of the elements. The minister is to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants. Following Christ's example again, as they were eating, Matthew 26, 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, this is something that many congregations do. Now our congregation has not uh, hitherto had this practice, although I believe it is biblical and confessional, where the, the minister himself, one of the elders themselves, actually publicly, before the eyes of the people, breaks the common loaf. Now, now, what happens at that point and how, you know, do, do we pass it around and everybody gets a clump or do we already have some prepared to make it actually uh, functional in a worship service? That, 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 is, uh, you know, that can be decided uh, by the congregation, I believe, and I've read some interesting things as to how different churches do this. But the, the way that this was done, this is what Christ did and this is what the confession says, that the minister takes the bread and breaks it. It's a, there's a symbolic picture before the eyes of the people. Now in the book of Acts, we see in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The, the breaking of the bread was so significant that it actually became synonymous with the Lord's Supper. To, to, to break bread in this sense was to come to the Lord's table. And there is a symbolism at play here, 1 Corinthians 10.17 Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, is he talking about the Lord's Supper or is he talking about Christ? I think the answer is yes. The idea of breaking apart one loaf shows the congregation that there is a unity in the church and in Christ. It's showing the sufficiency of the one Christ to be sufficient for all of the people, and the salvation of all of His people. If we wanted to, to do sort of a type, anti-type thing, we might say that the 12 loaves of the bread of the presence, 12 representing the people of God, has, has now been uh, uh, substituted or fulfilled in the one loaf in the congregation of, of the church. Maybe that's what's happening there. But that was... That's a part of the, the observation of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread. Now that phrase, they communicating also themselves, I believe that's what it's saying is the elders are also supposed to partake of the elements of bread and wine. That there's not a, 
a clergy laity distinction at the Lord's table as if we administer it to you, but we don't need it. We'll sit here and watch you. No, we all come together because we're all in need of the grace of Christ. Now, having seen those five things and what we might consider if we think back to everything we just saw, a fairly significant breadth of topics and things in this short paragraph... I want to come back and read from 1 Corinthians 11, the passage that we read every Lord's Day in closing. And I want, again, I want you to take notice of how simple this is, the simplicity of what Christ has given us. We have the ability, I have the skill uh, of taking something simple and making it complex. And so now that's what I want to do is come back to this passage and just see how simple this really is. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now from this passage we can deduce this. You take bread and wine. You pray. You give out bread and wine. You eat the bread, you drink the wine. And in that, we all participate in proclaiming the death of Christ every Lord's Day until He comes. The heart of man loves to take the simplicity that is found in the ordinances of God and distort them and fill them with superstitions because that is what makes carnal men feel like they're truly a part of a real, spiritual, religious ritual. God requires that we come in faithful submission to His plain and simple ordinances. Because when we do that, man is not exalted. There's no glorying in any of this. It's, it's so simple that it, it, is, it is humiliating. Because it is so simple. What happens when we do this? Christ is exalted. Regular bread, regular wine. Pass it out. Pray over it. What does this do? It reminds us of His body, of His blood. It says nothing to us except that your sins are forgiven. So when we do it this way, Christ is exalted. And that should be our desire. We, we shouldn't... We, we have to fight against this. I have to fight against this. The, the, sometimes the felt urge to maybe, maybe give it a little uh, oomph, a, a little something to spice it up. We have to fight against that and say, no, the Lord has not called us to spice anything up or to make anything... Uh, in any way artificial. Just do what He's commanded and remember Christ's body and blood in the act. Well, let's pray and then we'll stand and sing together.